0: We find 1 Kings 17, <clears throat> 1 Kings chapter 17, and uh, we're going to start tonight with with verse three. 1 Kings 17, verse three. Uh, word, word got back to me that last week's study, you know, the dispensationalism and that got a little bit heavy for people, and uh, I think one or two people had a bit of a job <laughs> understanding it. Um, let me say that obviously the tape is there. Perhaps a the second listen would help but I've always maintained that if for any reason if what I say goes in one ear and out the other ultimately it's because there's nothing in the middle to stop it <laughs> alright so a little a little bit of application and uh, <laughs> right let's um, 1 Kings 17 we're, we're going to read from uh, verse 3 just down to verse 6 tonight so um, well, last week we saw the verse two, and the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah that is depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, that is, east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is, east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So we've, we've seen so far that Elijah has leapt into action out of absolutely nowhere and he's delivered his prophetic statement to Ahab about the fact that the drought is on and that God's judgement is coming etc etc. And uh, having done that uh, Elijah is now sent by God, the Lord speaks to him and says right now you've got to go to Brook Cherith. And the reason that God gives is quite simply this, he says Elijah depart and hide yourself now we're going to ask ourselves why what's what what was this Elijah hide yourself what's all this about there are two possible things it could be now the first one that I'm going to show you we can dismiss fairly quickly all right so the two possible reasons that God could be saying Elijah hide yourself the first is in order to protect him from Ahab's fury After all Elijah has come forward, told this wicked king something he didn't want to hear and uh, you know maybe you know God is saying right depart and hide yourself because I want you to be protected from Ahab, he'll be trying to kill you. Now let me say that that cannot possibly be the reason. Protection from Ahab's fury is not the reason that God tells Elijah to depart and hide himself. Go to Proverbs chapter 21 And I will show you why that is not the reason that God is sending Elijah to Brook Cherith. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 1. A verse interesting for many reasons. Now look at this. Proverbs 21 and the first verse. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Did you say that? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, I don't know what that says to you, but what that says to me is however out of fellowship and backslidden King Ahab was, the Lord was still in control of him. You see, Ahab couldn't touch Elijah without God's permission anyway because nothing can happen without God saying, that's okay. So therefore, we needn't have any fears that God wanted to hide Elijah so Ahab couldn't find him and kill him because God could have prevented Ahab from killing Elijah no problem. Uh, you know, in fact, if you think about it, I mean, if Ahab was going to kill Elijah, and Ahab would have certainly wanted to have killed Elijah, he would have done it on the spot. But he didn't, did it? Why? Because the king's hand is a stream of water. In the, ha- the king's heart is a stream of water. In the hand of the Lord, God is absolutely sovereign. He's in control, and that includes of Ahab as well. Uh, go to Luke. See this in the life of Jesus. Go to Luke chapter 4. (coughs) Luke chapter 4. Now, from verse 16 onwards, Jesus has gone to his hometown here, Nazareth, where he grew up and uh, this is very very early on in the ministry of Jesus and he's gone into the synagogue so these are all the people he grew up with, this is his hometown; everyone knew him and uh, he goes into the synagogue and he preaches, alright, he teaches and uh, he basically discloses who, who he was <coughs> now we're going to start reading from verse 28 and as we're going to see the reaction was not good uh, look at this and this is Jesus, you know, giving teaching in the town he grew up in. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Everyone who was listening to what Jesus was saying was getting really angry with him. And they rose up and put him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down headlong. Now what's happening here, Jesus has been teaching and it has so, what he has said has so angered the people in the synagogue that absolute confusion breaks out. Like a mob, they run up to the front of the synagogue, they grab hold of him, they bundle him out of the synagogue and they drag him to the top of this hill which has got like a precipice on it. And the reason they're doing this is that they wanted to throw Jesus over because he had angered them that much. So here they are, dragging him up the hill, they're getting him to the top and they're ready to throw him off and kill him. Now look at verse 30. But passing through the midst of them, he went away. Have you ever thought how he did that? I mean, here's a mob, you've got hold of someone, probably carrying him over their heads and they're getting ready to throw him off. By the time they get there, he's not there anymore, is he? Now, hang on, wait a minute, we we're holding on to him a minute ago, Is he gone? Because, why? Well, it wasn't Jesus' time to die. Therefore, that crowd, they could try and kill Jesus all they liked, they couldn't touch him, Jesus quite simply got away. And it rather paints the picture here that one minute he was there and one minute he was gone. He just wasn't there anymore, Jesus was off somewhere else. Uh, Go to John chapter 8, see a similar incident. John chapter 8, we're establishing a very simple principle here. You may well be determined to kill one of God's children. That doesn't mean you can you might have the means you might have the motive you might have the opportunity but that's not enough you need a fourth thing the permission of God is he? John chapter 8 and uh, just find verse 48 now again here we have an instance where Jesus is teaching and uh, the people in the crowd you know they're asking him questions you know the Pharisees are there and what Jesus is saying does not go down well at all and we're not interested particularly here in what he was saying but um, just go to verse 59 now look at this so they took up stones to throw at him again Jesus is so angry that here Jesus is telling them that he is God and uh, you know they're saying you've got a demon and that this is blasphemy so they want to execute him on the spot a la law of Moses Now, never mind the fact that the law of Moses told you the procedures to go through before capital punishment could be carried out. So what they're saying here, well the law of Moses says you ought to be stoned, never mind the preliminaries, let's just get on with it. And so they decide to execute him on the spot. And they'd have done it, I mean very rugged terrain. Uh, When it says they pick up stones to throw at him, don't think these little pebbles on the beach. These are massive great big rocks, that's what they stoned people to death with two or three hit them on the head you know hit you on the head you were dead basically stoning was over fairly quickly so here they are they're so angry with jesus there's rocks lying around all over the place there's a crowd of them all right they pick up stones they start chucking the stones at jesus now look at verse 15 you know the last bit but jesus hid himself and went out of the temple Is he? they started to stone him And the picture here is, as soon as the stones started landing where Jesus was standing, he wasn't there anymore. He'd done his disappearing trick, which Jesus did on quite a few occasions. Remember in the upper room, after Jesus rose from the dead, he did his reappearing trick. Well, here he does a disappearing trick, just like he did when they were dragging him up to the top of the cliff. Now, the main point is quite simply this. Here were people determined to kill Jesus. Could they? No, why not? because they didn't have the permission of God. The timing was wrong. They had the opportunity, they had the means, they certainly had the motive, but they didn't have the permission of God. You remember in the Old Testament, the story of Job. Bear in mind, Job didn't know what was going on, but basically in Job's life, what's happening is that as Satan presents himself in heaven, and, uh, you know, and the Lord says, where, where have you been Satan? What have you been up to lately? And, and Satan said, well, walking to and fro on the earth and uh, there's a kind of idiom there, a picture of ownership because Satan is the god of this world and uh, so really what Satan is saying is, you know, to so God is the world's mine, God you know, you're not in control, I'm in control no one's following you and, uh, and what God says, he says, have you considered my servant Job? he doesn't belong to you, Satan you've just made a false claim the whole world is not yours because Job belongs to me now Satan responded, he said, oh yeah, but he doesn't really You've blessed him. Look, he's got loads of money, he's got a lovely family, he's got good health, he's got everything anyone could need. And Satan says, the only reason he's following you is because of everything you've given him. And I'll bet if you took it all away, he won't follow you anymore. And so the Lord said, alright, okay, do a deal with you, Satan. You can take away his family and all his property. So off goes Satan, takes it all away. His family dies, you know, all his money goes. And, uh, but Job stays faithful to God. He didn't curse God. He stayed faithful. And uh, so Satan comes back and says, well, I mean, he's got his health, hasn't he? And God said, well, take that then. (coughs) But don't kill him. See, God said, but you can't kill him. So in the life of Job, Satan could go how far? However far God allowed him to. It's as simple as that. And God said, you're not to kill him. You take his health, but you can't kill him. So, what is it that we're seeing here? Quite simply, quite clearly, all over the Bible, life and death is in the hands of the Lord. And your life and your death is in his hand. And my life and my death is in his hand. Now, the point is, someone, and Satan may be behind it, someone might decide, oh, here's a Christian, they're going to die. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to do it. But unless the Lord says, yeah, all right, that serves my greater purpose, unless God says, okay, you will not be able to do it. God is sovereign. Not only is the king's heart like a stream of water in the hands of the Lord, everyone's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. Here we are seeing the sovereignty of God. So, remember, we're answering the question. God has said to Elijah, hide yourself. Go to Brook Cherith, hide yourself. And we're saying one reason could be so that Ahab can't find you and kill you. And I'm demonstrating to you that that is not the reason that God is sending Elijah to Cherith. Um, You know, for the simple reason, if Ahab was going to kill Elijah and he'd have wanted to, he'd have done it when Elijah was delivering his prophetic declaration. But Ahab didn't touch him. Why not? Because God didn't want Ahab to touch him. So the point is, Elijah is quite safe when it comes to Ahab because it is not the Lord's will for Ahab to be able to murder Elijah so therefore whether Elijah had been you know sort of like up a mountain where no one knew he was or by Brook Cherith or right in the middle of King Ahab's court surrounded by all King Ahab's personal soldiers he was safe because it wasn't God's will for him to die so therefore we've established that when the Lord says to Elijah right now hide yourself Go to Brook Cherith. It is not in order to protect him from King Ahab. All right. Now then, so what's the second thing that this could be? Well, what we've got here, what God is saying to Elijah, is not hide yourself from, you know, it's not law saying, well, Ahab's going to kill you, so hide yourself from it. We haven't got here a hide yourself from. What God is saying to Elijah is go to Brook Cherith, and he's saying Elijah now you've got to hide yourself and that's where the emphasis is not hide yourself from anyone or anything it's Elijah hide yourself and we're here going to be seeing Elijah moving on if you like to the next phase of the work that God is doing in him the idea that we have here really is God saying right Elijah you've made your prophetic declaration now go out to Brook Cherith because the next thing we've got to do is we've got to get you out of the way now here we're seeing another absolutely foundational truth to everything that we need to be learning from the life of Elijah. There's a foundational truth here that we need to understand concerning our lives as we follow the Lord. Do you remember in the first talk I said that there were three parallels that we had here in the story of Elijah and the third parallel, all right, was that in the story of Elijah we've got a picture of how God deals with those whom he's going to use in order to clear up the mess that his people are in, alright? And that is the picture that we've got here. The Lord has called us, we're born again, we're following the Lord. He wants to use us, and in whatever way that is, it's going to be different for each one of us, but the Lord wants to use us. We're going to see how the Lord used Elijah, but what we're now going to be seeing is how God works in order to prepare Elijah so that he can be used in the way that God wants to. And what we have here is we're going to see a transition that begins to occur in Elijah's life. And the transition is this. We're going to see Elijah moving away from merely what he does for God. And we're going to see a transition over to the lord doing things through elijah now can you see the difference there the difference between elijah's sort of lord you show me what you want done and i'll do it for you and the lord revealing to elijah what needs doing and then him being free to do it through elijah now can you see that difference the difference between merely doing things for the lord and the lord doing things through you that's the difference and it's profound go to John chapter 3 and we'll see actually John the Baptist talking about this he understood it Gospel of John in chapter 3 and if you find verse 27 And it says, John answered, no one can receive anything except what is given him from heaven. That's interesting, isn't it? You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice therefore this joy of mine is now full he must increase but i must decrease all right now can you see what john is saying there jesus must increase in me but i must become smaller and smaller and smaller and part of the picture here um, is that of the the bridegroom at a wedding and the friend of the bridegroom because after all the relationship between Jesus and his church is that Jesus is masculine and the church is feminine so the church is the bride Jesus is the bridegroom therefore the picture is of the the best man to the groom now the point is at a wedding when we're talking about the two men involved you know I mean you've got the you know like the father of the bride and the bride has her bridesmaids, blah 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 but between the groom and the best man who is the day centering around. Is it the best man? No, it's centering around the groom. And that's the picture that John's saying, I'm not going to get in the way of the wedding. All the eyes are going to be on the bridegroom, on Jesus. All the eyes are not going to be on me. I'm merely the the best man. That's all I am. And I want all eyes to be on Jesus. Therefore, I'm going to get out of the way so that no one sees me but people only see Jesus. So John said he must increase and I must decrease. There is that transition that we're talking about here. And that is why Elijah is at this point sent to Brook Cherith. It's to begin that process of Elijah decreasing and the Lord increasing in him. And the terminology For this in the New Testament um, is simply that of death and dying. Go to Matthew chapter 10. Now let's see the way that the New Testament speaks about this thing. Matthew chapter 10. If you find verse 34. (coughs) Matthew chapter 10 and starting at verse 34. Jesus speaking. Here's some verses that got us into trouble a while ago. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a soul. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me he who finds his life will lose it but he who loses his life for my sake will find it now there can you see Jesus what he's talking about? he's talking about dying death here related to family what could ultimately be more offensive than that? that Jesus demands that his disciples even die to their own family. That's amazing. It's not here saying that if someone follows Jesus it's a guarantee that their family going to turn against me. It's not saying that at all. But what Jesus is saying, if that is what is required then every disciple must be willing to yield to it. But here Jesus is talking about taking up the cross and following him. Now go over, still in Matthew, into chapter 16. Chapter 16 and find verse 24. The same thing restated. Matthew, chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, so he says this to us, right here and now. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now that's interesting if you're going to follow me let him deny himself so you've got to deny yourself what did God tell Elijah was going to happen next he had to hide himself can you see to hide yourself and to deny yourself can you see we're talking the same thing here, we're talking death to self and here whenever Jesus talks about taking up the cross and following him you've got to Understand what that's meaning. What did the cross stand for? It's not about Christians, you know, sort of like, I mean there's an idea that sort of like maybe everyone's got a particular weakness or maybe a thousand weaknesses in their life, you know, or whatever and there are things in our lives which are a cross to bear and a Christian life is going around all stooped over because you're carrying your cross. And following the Lord is very moaning affair. Something horrible happens. Oh, well, another weight on my cross to weigh me down. That's not the idea. The idea of the cross is Jesus picked it up, he carried it up a hill, and was nailed to it and died on it. Then no more cross. So the idea of the cross here is representing death to self. To follow Jesus, we carry our cross in order that we can die to self. That's what it's all about. Go to Romans. Let's see Paul talking about this. (coughs) Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and find verse 3. Romans 6, chapter 3. Sorry, Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Yes, did I say chapter 3? How confusing. Right. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, now when are you baptized into Christ? When you're born again. Right? All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. So there you've got an idea of two things there it's the death on the cross to something so that there's a rising again to something else so it's death to sin, death to self death to the old nature but so that there's a rising from the dead to something that is new What is the old dying to ourselves? What is the new Jesus living through us? That's the whole point of it. Now then, let's ask ourselves, right, this process, God is going to start working in Elijah's life. So let's ask the question, why Brook Cherith? Is there some deep, significant reason why Brook Cherith? Now we're going to dive into Old Testament typology. So you've got to apply all the tests that I told you about in the first talk here. Okay, why brook cherith? Well, cherith in the Hebrew means a cut. That's what the name of this brook is. Brook cut. (laughs) All right, the literal meaning of it. And it comes from the Hebrew word koroth. Now that verb in the Hebrew means to cut off or to cut down or to cut asunder. It means to destroy or to consume. To destroy or to consume. Now also be aware in the Old Testament you had something that was called cutting a covenant. Now to you and I we might draw up a legal, adre- a, you know, a legal agreement or we might strike a bargain. That is the terminology that we use for the Hebrews in the Old Testament, you didn't strike up a bargain you cut a covenant and the reason that you cut a covenant is because if two people were making an agreement between each other it was solemn and it was binding and what they did is they got a sacrificial animal all right, that represented the, the, the deal that they were doing the agreement they were coming to the covenant they were entering into and what they did is they cut this animal right down the middle And, you know, it wouldn't have been just a little wiggly worm. I mean, this would have been a big animal. It was a messy business. And they cut the animal in half. And they separated it into the two halves. All right? So there's your half. That's your part of the bargain. Uh, Here's my half. That's my part of the bargain. And then you walked in the middle of the sacrifice together in all the blood. And so you cut a covenant. All right? Now then. The point is that can you see that the picture there of cutting a covenant and this verb korath from which the word brook cherith comes from includes the idea of death. Death and sacrifice. So, and also the whole point about the covenant, the reason that in the Old Testament that that was the way that the Jews struck a covenant between each other it was a picture of eventually the new covenant that was going to come because Jesus was sacrificed on the cross and through the death through his blood shed on the cross the covenant, the new covenant between God and man was formed so again it was a picture in the Old Testament foreshadowing the covenant that God was going to create when Jesus died on the cross by shedding his blood alright so we can see quite clearly here that Cherith by semantic association, the meaning of the word its etymological application, if you want to get clever, <laughs> okay, simply represents death. And that is what is at the heart of the word. Now then, what we've got to ask is, right, so what else does the idea of a cut represent? We've seen in, 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 in Hebrew that it, it has meanings of death, etc, etc. Let's bring it up to the English. This applies to the Hebrew as well, but even in English. What does the idea of a cut represent? I mean, when we use the verb to cut, what are we talking about? Well, for instance, take a railway cutting. Now, when we use the word railway cutting, a cutting in that sense, what are we talking about? A cutting <coughs> is quite simply, say you're you've got a railway and it's going from A to B. So along come the engineers and the railroaders and that, and they've got to lay the track. Now, if there's a whacking great big hill that goes up about fifty or sixty feet, um, then rather than than, than put the track up the hill and then down the other side uh, what they do is they just cut right through the hill so they dig a trench right through it and the tracks just go through the hill therefore you're going along in this train and you've got a nice view and then you enter the cutting and all you can see is the grass of the hill because it's a cutting right through it (coughs) so a cutting is a trench that is dug into the ground Uh, I mean down here at Chigwall and by Buckersteel School the motorway is in a cutting, you know, it's dug into the fields, so the level of the fields is the same either side, and if you're standing on the field, you wouldn't know that there was a road there, because you're just seeing across it, but walk up to the embankment and there's this big valley and a motorway there, that's what a cutting is, it's a trench dug in the ground, so Cherith means a trench, a cutting in the ground, now then, A six-by-three trench in the ground is what you bury people in. It's a grave. Do you see the picture? You bury people in a trench. You bury people in a cut in the ground. You bury people in a cherith. And the point is that the Lord sent Elijah to brook cherith to signify that he had work to do in him because Elijah needed to die to himself in order that the Lord could live through him from that point onwards. Now let's just kind of note the situation uh, at Brook Cherith because it's important to get an idea of the the situation that Elijah's in. He is now in the middle of nowhere. He is Completely on his own. Uh, he drinks water from the brook. That's no problem anytime he's thirsty. Uh, dindins, uh, twice a day, bread and meat brought by the ravens. Um, and we'll be back to that shortly the fact that God fed Elijah through the ravens. Uh, now, notice there's no ministry for him. Absolutely none. No ministry. Uh, there are no crowds he's out in the middle of nowhere on his own. There is nothing dramatic happening in his life at all. Stillness, inertia, boredom. Um, there's no one to give advice to. Oh, well, I think. See? Because there's no one there, just him. I mean, you know, he might have you know sort of like you know I suppose the ravens might have shared a problem or two with him but he had no one to be giving advice to in fact he had nothing to do whatsoever except think well think and pray be with himself and with the Lord there was no distraction of any kind Elijah has been isolated from everyone and everything so that it is simply him and the Lord. Now, what we need to understand is that to know what God has called you to, this could be in regards to anything, anything that the Lord wants you to do, uh, to know what God has called you to, in any instance, and to be ready to do it, are two quite separate things. And they are often separated by years and years of God dealing with you and preparing you. (coughs) So the point is, God wants to use us in particular ways, whatever those ways are. But to know in what way God wants to use you and to be ready for God to use you are quite two different things. As I say, often separated by years of God really dealing with us And preparing us. And the reason is, because quite simply, if it's going to be done properly, if it's going to be biblical, if it's going to be the Lord's best, it's not going to be you doing it at all. It's going to be the Lord doing it through you, with you and me out of the way. Do you see the difference? Oh yes, of course it's going to be us doing it, obviously. But it's going to be empowered, energised, the source of it, is going to be coming from the life of Jesus inside of us not from our own intelligence, talents, experience, ideas or whatever. So therefore God has to get people out of the way before he can really use them in the way that he wants to. And this applies not just to ministry or service I all you know sort of God's called me to be an evangelist. It doesn't just in regards to that But this principle that we're seeing applies to living the Christian life in totality. Go to Galatians, (coughs) the letter that Paul wrote to Galatian church. (coughs) Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Look what Paul says here. Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now, in the literal Greek, in the Greek, that should be the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me so what Paul is saying here is saying it's no longer I who live but Christ now does that mean that Paul has become an empty shell and Jesus lives through him and Paul just is hardly exists virtually Jesus living through Paul's body instead of him and Paul vanished somewhere no because then Paul says I live now what it's saying is isn't Jesus like becoming you instead of you or anything like that it's quite simply saying that Paul had experienced in his life what it was for him and his sinful nature for him to have substantially been got out of the way so that the new nature in him, the life of Jesus in him was flowing through him. So in a sense Paul out of the way and Jesus living through him and this he's talking about here not in the context of ministry or gifts or calling but just quite simply the Christian life this is what the Christian life is Jesus living through us. The life of Jesus being revealed in us more and more because our old nature is being dealt with by God and bit by bit systematically being taken to the cross and crucified. Hence Paul uses in Romans the terminology of being dead to sin. So that's tremendously important for us to realize. Now there are two things here which we've got to see and they're two sides of the same coin alright they're part and parcel of each other the two sides of the coin are this really seeing knowing experiencing and tasting our utter sinfulness weakness and helplessness before God that's the first side of the coin deep conviction of sin that so humbles us, we really taste the bitterness of our evil hearts and drink that to the dregs. That is one side of it, deep repentance. But the other side of the same coin, and these two always go hand in hand, the one leads to the other. If it doesn't, it's not genuine. And What that leads to is such a revelation of the Lord's grace and glory and power in our lives to overcome our sin, forgive us, cleanse us, and live through us. So, on the one hand, it's a revelation of our total depravity. On the other hand, it's a revelation of Jesus in all his glory. His mercy, his love, his grace, his forgiveness. It's coming to a place with the Lord that you've glimpsed in the past you've glimpsed but you know you've never been there that is where the lord wants to take you and what we're talking the result of god doing this in someone we're talking fundamental character changes in people we really are talking the fruit of the spirit and the fruit of the spirit is character it's not necessarily what you do or don't do it's character we're talking about loving others we're talking about patience with people we're talking about forgiving people we're talking about graciousness whatever people are doing to you, returning graciousness Uh, we're talking true humility and we're talking that solid being together in yourself, absolutely solid in whatever circumstances you are. Now that is character and the reason that that is character is because it's the character of Jesus being revealed in us because there's been a fundamental death in our lives to ourselves. And when you're talking about loving others who despitefully use you, when you're talking about patience, these are not things that if you practice long enough, you'll get your sinful nature in line over. They're totally against the grain of what human beings are. These are the character (laughs) of Jesus himself revealed (coughs) in us and we are seeing here that the Lord knew full well that more than anything else (coughs) the next stage in his working in Elijah had to bring him to this revelation this experience of dying to self so that the Lord could work through him. Now for one moment let's just ask a question what would have happened to Elijah on the Christian scene today? Um, you've got a situation, alright, where a man comes on the scene and he's got a prophetic word that he speaks to the, the Queen of England or whatever, if we're going to bring it up today, or whatever. But, but, but today, someone appears, say Elijah done it today, the church would look on and say, well, here is God's man for now. Here is a prophet of the Lord, clearly, undeniably. We accept, here's a prophet. Now then, what would happen to Elijah on the Christian scene today? I'll tell you, he would have been launched into national and international ministry. That's what would have happened today. His diary would have overnight become more booked up than he had ever known in his life. He would have become God's man of the hour and every conference that had a name for itself would be wanting Elijah as the main speaker. Every church that had a name for itself would want to make sure that Elijah was going to be preaching at some time in the next six months. There'd be speaking engagements for him, there'd be tours, America, Europe, Britain (coughs) speaking tours, there'd be conferences. He would be catapulted overnight into what I call the big men clique. He would have been propelled into jet-set leadership Christianity overnight. There'd have been interviews by the Christian press, wouldn't there? He'd have got on TV. He'd have got on TV. Because the Christians would have made sure he did. Now let me say, that's what would happen to Elijah today. That's what people would have wanted for Elijah today. Let me say, it would have destroyed him. It would have destroyed him. Now, rather than that, at this point, what does God know that Elijah needs? Total obscurity, absolute quietness and inactivity. Can you see how God's ways are not our ways? God's thoughts are not our thoughts? And, you know, the Bible even says that the foolishness of God is wiser than the (coughs) wisdom of men. And that in our thinking today, the worldly thinking, if Elijah came on the scene, we want to launch him, we want to use him, we want to make sure the word got out and that everyone was blessed by him. In other words, the church today would have wanted to make a celebrity of him. And that was the worst possible thing that could have happened. So therefore, God says, Elijah, (coughs) brook cherub, And the closest you're going to come to notoriety is that the ravens are going to know you and that's the most fame and attention that you're going to get at the moment because it is the last thing you need what you need is humbling humbling, humbling, humbling being dealt with, being dealt with, being dealt with that's what God knew Elijah needed and that is what Elijah got let's at this point go through and see other characters in the Bible getting this Elijah treatment go to Isaiah (coughs) Elijah was a prophet Isaiah was a prophet so let's have a look at Isaiah if you find chapter 5 Isaiah chapter 5 and uh, I'm going to read various verses because um, I want you to get the idea why Isaiah needed the Elijah treatment Isaiah chapter 5 first of all Verse 8, and uh, these verses I'm going to read just characterize really what Elijah, uh, Isaiah's ministry was all about up to this point. Now, verse 8, Jerusalem has stumbled, Judah has fallen, their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. Go over to verse 11, woe to the wicked, it shall be ill for him, for what his hands have done shall be done to him. Go to verse eighteen. In the day, in that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents. Oh, sorry, this is Isaiah. Sorry, I'm reading the wrong chapter there. Sorry, verse chapter five. I was reading chapter three. Well, actually, those verses in chapter three fit as well. But yeah sorry, Isaiah chapter five. Let's start again. They, yeah, that's right. <laughs> It is chapter 5. We'll start again. Verse 8. Chapter 5, verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Go to verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening, till wine inflames them. Verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. Verse 21. Verse 21 woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight verse 22 woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine now are you getting the message of the sum total of Isaiah's ministry up to this point you can sum his ministry up in this way woe to everyone now here is Isaiah and it doesn't matter who he meets who he's thinking about it's woe to you Woe to them, you're wrong, and you over there, you're wrong for this, and don't you look so smug, mate, because you're wrong for that, and you're not right with God because of this. Now, what we've got to understand is that this, everything that Isaiah is saying here is absolutely true. He's saying this, it's scripture, and he was proclaiming it under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It was absolutely true. And remember that the good news of salvation, or whatever, begins with repent. It starts off as a negative thing, you're wrong, but becomes positive when you admit it and get right with God. So what we've got here, if you go from Isaiah chapter 1 up to chapter 5, you've got the negative bit. And that's all. That's all. There's nothing positive, it is merely the negative. It's if you like, law, law, law. Not an ounce of grace in it. It's all absolutely right. It's all absolutely true. But my goodness, you get the feeling there's something lacking here in Isaiah. What we're going to see is that Isaiah chapter 1 to 5 was all well and good. But it couldn't really go beyond chapter 5. Because it would be such an unreadable book, it would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? So therefore, when we get to chapter 6, we're going to see Isaiah... uh, Attending the appointment, as I say, that every believer must attend with the Lord at some time. Now let's just read chapter 6, starting from verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, (coughs) and his train filled the temple. Remember what I said earlier, two sides of the coin, what's one side? A vision of Jesus in all his glory. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim to me, having in his hand a burning coal which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin forgiven. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me." Now, can you see what's happening to Isaiah? He's had a calling as a prophet, and sin needed exposing in Israel. At the leading of the Lord, Isaiah was doing that. Chapter 1-5, to absolutely anointed and inspired. But there is still something desperately wrong with Isaiah. It's baby ministry. It's right at the beginning. It's good as far as it goes, but it could only be that immature for so long. In chapter six comes a time for Isaiah to grow up. Now, what do we largely see here? After five chapters of woe is you, woe is her, woe is him, woe are they, for the first time here we have Isaiah saying, woe is me. And Isaiah here comes into the revelation not of everyone else's sin that's easy he comes into the revelation of his own sin and at the same time the revelation of the Lord in all his glory and what is significant is that he says woe is me I am lost I am a man of unclean lips and yet he was a prophet his lips were the mainstay of the ministry God had called him to and Isaiah is here seeing that there was no good in him at all. You see, before this, Isaiah was comparing himself to other people. And if you compare yourself to other people, you can usually come out quite well, because you're just careful who the people are that you compare yourself to. But when you're standing before the Lord of glory and have no choice but to compare yourself to him, then the picture rather changes, doesn't it? Um, Have you ever noticed sheep? Uh, we were driving down through the reservoirs last week, and all, all the sheep lined up, you know, on the grass embankments. And uh, if you if you think the picture postcard idea of sheep, if you think about it, is uh, you know sort of nice green grass and these lovely white things bouncing along, and, and, and they're kind of shining white. And, and I suppose that the point is that if you if you take a quick look at a sheep against the background of bright green grass, yeah, they do look pretty white. Now, next time it snows, go and have a look at the sheep when they're backgrounded against (coughs) snow. They're horrible. They are dirty. They're not white at all. Grubby is the nicest you could be about it. Now, can you see? It depends what you're comparing it to. And uh, we often compare ourselves, as it were, to the green grass, don't we? Not the snow. And, uh, And here, Isaiah is getting the comparison right for the first time. And he is seeing that he's in exactly the same state and boat as the people that he's preaching against. What was their problem? Sin. They hadn't died to self. What was his problem? Sin. He hadn't died to himself either. So here, he keeps his appointment. Well, he didn't know he was going to have it. He's just suddenly there for the, you know. And suddenly, God is showing him the truth about himself. But what is so interesting is now go over into chapter 7. And uh, in verse 14, verse 14, we have this prophecy. Therefore, the Lord will himself give you a sign. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, no Old Testament book contains as much prophecy about Jesus as Isaiah. And here is the first one. Now can you see what's happened? Chapter 1 to 5. Isaiah moving in the spirit, yes, but undealt with. What can he come out with? Condemnation and law. Now that's right and proper. That's part of the ministry of a mature believer as well. There's always repent and turn from your sins. That's always part of it. Now in chapter 6 he suddenly realizes that he's a sinner as well and God really deals with him, Really, he really starts dying to himself here and then in chapter 7, prophecies of Jesus and grace and forgiveness and a new life Do you remember what John's Gospel says? The law came through Moses but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ Now, chapters 1 to 5, what has Isaiah got? The law Where's the grace and truth? It's not there, why not? Well grace and truth is Jesus, isn't it? and Isaiah is living his own life, the Lord can't get through so in chapter 6 God deals with him, Elijah starts to die off chapter 7 what do we see? Grace and truth, Jesus coming through because Isaiah has been got out of the way can you see that marvellous picture as Isaiah is got out of the way, what starts to happen? character changes at the deepest level because it's no longer now Isaiah doing things for God it's the Lord moving and living through Isaiah, and therefore the Lord's character coming out in Isaiah's life. Let's have a quick look at Jacob. We keep going back to Jacob, but we've got to at this point. So, find Genesis chapter 28. Good old Jacob. We did the uh, talk on brokenness, didn't we? Not not too long ago. And uh, but let's let's just again see Jacob in this context to see that really that talk about brokenness, this is what it was all about. You know, we're we're just seeing it again, aren't we? Genesis chapter twenty-eight. Um chapter twenty eight and uh I've completely lost the place that I wanted. Hang on, let me have a quick look here. Uh yeah, Genesis chapter twenty eight uh from verses ten to twenty two Alright, and I'll let you read this when you get home or some other time, you know, because we're we're running a bit short of time, we've got a long way to go. But here, in Genesis chapter 8, you have Jacob becoming a believer. why like he's born again. He becomes a believer. So, for, let's just read from uh, verse 16. You get this... You know, the story of Jacob, he goes to sleep and he has a dream of the ladder and the angels going up and down on it, ascending and descending. And in verse 16 you've got this, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it." So he's meeting the Lord for the first time. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. Now why did he say that that place was the gate of heaven? Well because it's where he met Jesus and Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. Is he? So here Jacob becomes a believer. He's born again. And in verse 18 to 21 you've got, you know, kind of uh, you know, Jacob, he makes a vow with God, and he says, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, blah, 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 then I'll give a tenth of all I've got. And, you know, Jacob, immediately, the old nature, he starts bargaining with God. Oh, this is great, now I know you, Lord. Well, look, you do this, 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 and this, and I promise that I'll do that, 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 and that. And that is Jacob as his natural, you know, in his natural state. Now, go over now to verse chapter 20, 32. Chapter 32 and the thing to notice is that we're twenty-odd years later twenty-odd years later Jacob has been a believer for years and years and years but now he's going to come on the next phase of God dealing with him and maturing him and uh, you know the story so well in verse 1-2 to 2, uh, the the army of the Lord meets him, he has a revelation of all the angels and uh, he calls the place Mahanaim uh, you remember which means uh, place of two armies. Because Jacob's mentality is, Lord, there's your power, your your angels, blah, blah, blah. Here's me, and I've got my flocks and my family and all the people who work with me and my money, my talents and my deviousness and my winning, you know, personality, because he was a con man, basically. <coughs> and uh, so what, what Jacob said, this is brilliant, Lord, we're pooling resources. You're doing your bit, I'm doing mine. So he saw God as a real power because there's his army. But he saw himself as a real power because he said it was the place of two armies. So again, 20 years later, Jacob remains a man pulling resources with God. Now, in verse 22, we read this. The same night Jacob arose, he took his wives, maids and his 11 children, crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had and Jacob was left alone. Now what does that remind you of? That reminds me of Elijah at Brook Cherith. It's just that here he has to go over Brook Jabbok, it's just a different Brook. He is completely separated from everything and everyone that was dear to him. And then of course you know the story, this man appears and starts wrestling with Jacob. Jacob fights for his life, trying to get the man off, right? Uh, then the man breaks Jacob's thigh, the strongest part of the body, and a man can generate more power from the thigh than from any other part of the body. And what, what happened was, as soon as this man broke Jacob's thigh, then the man went to leave. And Jacob said, no, I'll not let you go unless you bless me. Now obviously this man is Jesus himself, because Jacob said, I've seen God face to face, but I'm alive. So what happens is the Lord sets on Jacob and Jacob is fighting him off. Why? Because Jacob is strong. I mean Jacob did not welcome takeover bids on his army even if it was God who was doing the takeover bid. So he fights him off for all he's worth. See Jacob was strong wasn't he? So the Lord touches and breaks his leg. Now, the moment the Lord does that, then the Lord, right, I'm off now, and Jacob fights, I'll not let you go unless you bless. Can you see? Jacob went from the transition of fighting God off and fighting for his own independence, to hanging on to God for dear life. What was it that changed? He was weakened. He was broken. He died to himself. And then the Lord said, Jacob, what's your name? And Jacob said, my name's Jacob. And Jacob means supplanter. Uh, in the vernacular, devious git because that's exactly what he was con man, supplanter, liar, deceiver and what does the Bible say about our own hearts? they're desperately wicked and deceitful above all things for the first time in his life, even though he'd been a believer for 20 years Jacob suddenly, woe is me what well, does that remind you of? Isaiah, when he was got all on his own to face the Lord you see what's happening here? And it was then that the Lord renamed him, said, you're no longer going to be Jacob, but you're going to be Israel, a prince with God. Can you see? So the old is being dealt with, it's being died to, and the new Israel, a prince with God, is coming through. Now then, there's something very interesting here. In verse 31, it just says, the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his thigh. Well, why was he limping? God had just broken his leg. That's nice of him, wasn't it? I'm going to be a good boy, I am. So here's this picture. God has really dealt with Jacob. And this strong, capable leader of this great army and family and whatever. Here he is limping. It's a bit of a pathetic sight, isn't it? Now, he was leaning on his staff, obviously. Now, you have the staff. It was bad terrain. Now, in the Bible, you'll find that a staff, bits of wood, always represent faith, (coughs) submission to God, dependency on God. And the thing about Jacob is that thus far, if he needed to lean on his staff, he would. But if he didn't need to, he wouldn't. Now, God had put him in a position where he had to at all times, because if he didn't, he'd fall over. So, therefore, what has happened here is that God has brought Jacob from a place where... Jacob was, well, on this one I'll go it alone, on that one, oh no, I I bet bring the Lord in on that one, because that's going to be a troublesome one. And he brings Jacob to the point where Jacob no longer trusts himself at all. It's not 50% the Lord and 50% Jacob doing his own thing. Now Jacob is in absolute dependency on the Lord the whole time. Now go to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. (coughs) (coughs) it's uh, what some people call the gallery of faith it's a chapter that talks about all the people in the Old Testament who because they had faith and trusted the Lord the Lord really used them and Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 21 now look at this Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 21 by faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now, can you see the picture there? We saw Jacob, having been broken, as a relatively young man, limping, didn't we? Limping away as the sun rose, right? But here, we're told that right up to when he died, the rest of his life on earth, and he grew to be quite an old boy. We have a picture of him right at the end of his life on the earth, bowing over his staff in worship. What's he doing? He is still hanging on to his staff for dear life, because if he doesn't, he knows he's going to fall over. And the picture we've got here is that God so dealt with Jacob that Jacob was the Lord's for the rest of his life because Jacob had nowhere to go when you've been broken of self-reliance to the degree that God wants there's no question of falling away there's no question of not depending on the Lord you can't do anything else you dare not trust yourself and that's the position that God got Jacob in he still sinned, he still got into terrible messes after he was broken But the breaking was done, and he was a different person for the rest of his life. Why? Because he died to himself. He was no longer pooling resources with God. The Lord was living through Jacob in his place. Let's have a look at Moses. Go to Exodus. Exodus chapter 2. All these people were prophets, incidentally. Moses was a prophet. Isaiah was a prophet. Jacob was a prophet as well. Exodus, chapter (coughs) 2, now then, verse 11, you remember that Moses, although he was Jewish, uh, when the persecution of the infants came, you remember his mother shoved him in this little Moses basket, that's where we get the name from, and he floats down the river, and uh, he's actually taken in and raised by Pharaoh's daughter as an Egyptian. Uh, But because God arranged for the nursemaid being a Jewess, Moses also knew that he wasn't really an Egyptian at all. He knew who he was. From the word go, he knew that he was an Israelite. Now, in Exodus chapter 2, let's read from verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, Moses knows what his calling is. He knows that God is going to use him. He loves his people he knows he's one of them and he believes in the Lord God of Israel all right no question about it he knows that God is going to really use him and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his people he looked this way and that so he looked all around him of course he didn't look up did he he looked this way and that and seeing no one he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand Uh, little bit video nasty there you know but not very nice when he went out the next day behold two Hebrews were struggling together you know so now he's seen a couple of Jews you know beating each other up Moses is daft you know I mean you know sort of like the Egyptians beat you up every day what do you want to beat each other up for you know and, Well, And I mean God's people are like that aren't they and, <coughs> and and he said to the man that did the wrong why did you strike your fellow and he answered who made you a prince and a judge over us do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian So. He, Moses didn't do a very good job, did he? Because, I mean, it was all out the next day, everyone knew that he'd murdered an Egyptian. Uh, Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the the thing is is known, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. So Moses had to scarper, didn't he? So, I mean, what you've got here is Moses, he belongs to the Lord, he's one of God's people and he knows what his calling is, he knows what he's got to do. And that burden, that desire is in his heart, which is good, because God has put it there. But what does he do? right he moves out in his own strength and what does he do he cocks it up and he makes it worse because this brought even greater oppression on Israel under bondage to Egypt what Moses did did more harm than good it was his contribution to God's will and it couldn't have been worse alright now let's go to chapter 3 verse 1 to (coughs) 6 Now in the meantime, where's he been? Well, he's been in the wilderness for forty years, looking after sheep. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and lo, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, he said, Here am I. Uh, sorry, and he said, here, here am I. Then he said, Do not come near, put off the shoes from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is hollow ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now what's happened here is that 40 years later having been a shepherd in the wilderness, 40 years later God says to Moses, right now it's time (laughs) now we're gonna do something about the plight of your people and my people Moses got it wrong by 40 years (laughs) right. now then look at verse 11 verse 11, but Moses said to God Who am I, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring out the sons of Israel from Egypt? Well, blow me down. What's happened to the cocky Moses who, 40 years earlier, went out and murdered someone because he thought that would be a contribution? What happened to him? Well, I'll tell you, 40 years in the wilderness has changed Moses. How has it changed him? Now, the call of God comes at the right time. He's hesitant. He's afraid. He's really kind of humbled. Lord, surely not me. Now that is absolutely right. Can you see the way the cockiness and the self-confidence has turned to what? Humility and absolutely no confidence in himself whatsoever. Why? Because he died in the wilderness. He was a shepherd. You couldn't get more humble than that. And after 40 years, Moses has died to all his plans, all his dreams. God has dealt with him in the wilderness and now it's the Lord and no longer Moses what's interesting is for 40 years Moses keeping sheep in that wilderness he knew it like the back of his hand what was significant about that? it was the wilderness that he was going to lead Israel through after they came out of Egypt for another 40 years you see you can only lead others where you yourself has been and it takes someone who really does know what it is to be dealt with by God in this respect to be a means of leading other people into it and Moses had to be that means Uh, Peter, it's just through Peter very quickly you remember Peter the disciple you know when Jesus said I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and I'm going to die and suffer like the scriptures say and Peter says you know Lord I'll die for you don't worry Lord I'll be there I'll get the cross next to you you know, and I mean, Peter meant it. I mean, bless him, he loved the Lord, he meant it. But the great problem with Peter, you see, it was, it was him doing things for the Lord. And what Peter didn't realise is he didn't have it in it. So the Lord said, Peter, Satan's going to sift you like we. I'm going to let Satan set about you, Peter, and he's going to sort you out. He really is going to sort you out, because you haven't got the right estimation of yourself yet. So, Jesus is arrested, Jesus, and then the Lord hands over to Satan. And what does Satan do? Satan sets, you know, sort of sets him up, a chance to acknowledge that he's with Jesus, a chance to die. And three times Peter bottles out and he says, I don't know him, I'm not with him. <coughs> and just after the third time that Peter denied Jesus, do you remember, Jesus was brought out across the courtyard and their eyes met. Peter looked over and Jesus looked over at him and Peter knew that he just denied him three times after promising that he never would. Now the point is, Peter, what was he learning? He was learning that it's one thing to will, but to do is something else entirely. It's one thing to say, Lord, yes, I'm going to be like you. I'm going to be faithful. It's one thing to want it and to say it, but it's another thing to do it. In fact, we can't do it. Peter couldn't do it. He thought he could, but he had himself all wrong. He was not humbled. There was self-reliance in Peter. Now that's so broken that so destroyed him his betrayal of Jesus that it emptied him it made him realise the absolute truth about himself same with the other disciples they often think at Pentecost when they were filled with the Spirit, we think, wow what God was able to do through them what was the secret of it? well I'll tell you, they were filled so much because they had been emptied of themselves so much prior to being filled can you see that? They were so empty of themselves that when the Lord filled them up and lived through them, oh boy, the Lord really did come out of them. So we've seen that Isaiah, Jacob, Moses, Peter, they all had to hide themselves. Just like Elijah is having to here at Brook Cherith. And it's exactly the same for you and I. We have to hide ourselves as well. Go to Philippians chapter 3 let Let's see something Paul writes here. Philippians. You'll remember this from when we did the Philippians series. <coughs> Philippians chapter 3 Philippians chapter 3 and we'll start from the second part of verse 8. And Paul says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What did Jesus die to? He died to sin. And Paul there speaking of exactly the same thing. So here we have Elijah, stripped of anything and everything that he held dear. Absolutely alone with God. As a very quick aside, just back to the guidance thing, normally when you get guidance you usually find that when Christians say, oh the word of the Lord came to me, it leads them into something rather rather nice, rather glorious. Well look where this guidance ended up Elijah. You know, with these Christians who are so hot on guidance, you don't usually find them being guided in this way. It's usually a bit nicer than this. Elijah is here guided. I mean, it's a bit inglorious, isn't it, on his own at Brook Cherith. But also, while he's there, he's being fed by the ravens. Now, what is significant about that? Go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, chapter 14. And verse 14, and it's talking about the animals and the birds that you can and can't eat. And this, uh, this is a list of the unclean birds in verse 14. In verse 11 you've got, you may all eat all clean birds, but these are the ones which you shall not eat. Verse 14, every raven after its kind. The raven was ceremonially unclean according to the law. It represented sin. It represented sin and here Elijah is being fed by the ravens. What's happening here? He is tasting of his own sin and wretchedness. He's being confronted with the true depth of his sin but more than that (coughs) he's being strengthened by it because food strengthens you. Now what do I mean by that? You see the more you taste of your own sinfulness The more you hit up against your own wretchedness inside, the more you hit up at the same time against the Lord's grace, His forgiveness, His mercy and His love. The more you taste and see your sinfulness, the more you taste and see the glory of Jesus. That is the two sides of the coin. The revelation of our sinfulness and depravity but with it comes the revelation of Jesus in all his glory and all his grace with death to sin and self comes the revelation of Jesus living through us now as we carry on with these, this series we're going to see that God's dealings carry on with Elijah way beyond Brook Cherith um, I mean God's dealings in our lives never stop, it is, this is always an ongoing process, process. But there are times, as here with Brook Cherith, when there are specific major crisis points, right, And here we're seeing Elijah going through one. And the thing that we need to know is that if invited, the Lord will do this in our lives. And my goodness, He'll do it in the way that's best for each one of us, but it's so important. I remember Many years ago, when I, I, I said to the Lord, you know, it's probably, I don't know, been a Christian for 8 years, maybe 12, 13 years ago. And I said, Lord, whatever this business is about the cross, I said, lay it on me. <laughs> I mean, I said it sincerely, but let me say in total ignorance, <laughs> because I didn't know what was going to come. And over years that followed, everything, that, everything that was dear to me, everything that meant anything to me, the Lord just destroyed. He destroyed. And me with it. But I wouldn't change it for the world. It was the best thing that could have happened to me. The mystics talk about the long, dark night of the soul. Well, it, it seemed like a long, dark eternity of the soul, I'll tell you. But what joy at the end of it. You know, the revelation of your oneness with Jesus, that he is living through you, it's absolutely amazing. And uh, it changed me. It changed me. As profoundly as being converted originally changed me and that really changed me, the Lord so changed me when I became a Christian my friends hardly recognised me, what earth has happened to you Beresford, I've become a Christian well years later when the Lord dealt with me even more profound changes happened I was different as a Christian after those years than I was before um, I just want to read a hymn uh, by John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace I've read this to you before but it's, uh, it's relevant here uh, there's one bit, you get the phrase gourds, alright? Gourds is ancient English for securities, it's referring to a plant. Now listen to this. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know, and seek more earnestly his face. I hoped that in some favoured hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. But instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand it seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my goods or securities, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayers for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ, from self and pride to set thee free, and break the schemes of earthly joy that thou may seek thy all in me. When God deals with you, those ravens keep coming, sin, 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 but it's God's way of leading us into a new place with him. We will continue next time. <coughs>